Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Devin Lamoureux, a rising star soccer photographer who has embedded with Weston McKenney in Italy and is here at the World Cup working as well. Before we get going, you can subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. I am in Qatar doing daily coverage of World Cup 2022. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you? Doing well. How is life in Qatar? Life is is hopefully normalizing a little bit here. Um, I didn't sleep much at all in the 24 hours after the U.S. game for a number of reasons. Even when normal things happen around the U.S. game, I am extremely busy doing various things work-wise. Um, the whole getting detained thing just, you know, I talked about in the last uh, podcast, but like it's it, it's been a lot of media requests, which is fine. I've done a, accepted a couple, uh, have not responded on a bunch just because it's overwhelming. But um, I have a cold. I do not have COVID, so that's good. Um, and I, I brought NyQuil and DayQuil with me, uh, knowing that this would happen. Uh, so that made your list. list. I remember you told us about making a list of things that you'd pack. So DayQuil, uh, DayQuil and NyQuil made the list. Yeah, more Dayquil than Nyquil, right? Because like Nyquil is only an overnight thing, and it kind of knocks you out, which actually was awesome last night. <laughs> like, I had not been sleeping very well, and uh, I got seven hours of sleep. That Nyquil just bam. But you you wake up and you feel kind of crappy. That's the only downside. Um, but um, I rallied, um, and then you know there's four games a day here. So I, I'm, not, I'm not going to any non-U.S. games. I'm watching all of them. And then I was at the main media center uh, for a little while today watching two of those games um, and did the interview with Devin Lamoureux at his um, apartment. He's staying in the U.S. soccer media program apartments about 15, 20 minutes away. So I got to see what that looked like. And, and I hope people listen to the interview because he, he reminds me of some of the young star photographers at Sports Illustrated uh, that I worked with who just, you know, they're going to be awesome because they're awesome already. And uh, I think he's going to do amazing things. So listen to that interview, everyone, if you can. Um, but let's talk. Let's talk because we've had a, two days since our last podcast together here. A lot has happened. And you know, we'll talk about the US as well, heading into USA England on Friday. But let's talk about Belgium, Canada, because that's the the late game tonight here. Belgium won, Canada nil. Very frustrating for Canada because they were the better team in this game. Belgium gets a goal off just a old school long ball that Batshuayi finishes. Alfonso Davies has a penalty save by Thibaut Courtois, but Canada, I wouldn't say dominated, but I think they were the better team tonight. Yes, and and to me the thing that was interesting was the manner in which they were better than Belgium because we could have very easily seen a scenario in which they sort of negate Belgium, make them sort of impotent, and then figure out ways to play around that. But they just went out them. They they went after them. They were aggressive. They were at times playing man-to-man press, which I thought was kind of astounding. And the number of different ways that they played was really interesting. I, I feel like Tejan Buchanan played about seven different positions in the right. game. He was all over the place. Alfonso Davies was all over the place. But the one thing that surprised me that was ultimately their Achilles heel in this game was despite the fact that I think they have very good center forwards, they weren't very good finishing on the day. 
They didn't, they didn't put away chances when they had them. They missed a penalty. The referee missed giving them a penalty when he should have given one. And I think the way that Canada went out and played this game, I, it's sort of weird, right? Because you want to win your first World Cup game. You want to score a goal in your first World Cup game. But how cool it must have been for like a Canada fan who, or maybe even a Canada agnostic who only cares about ice hockey and only cares about the sports that are big in Canada because Canada has never really been worth paying attention to in this sport until like 18 months ago. So you sit down to watch their first World Cup game and you're told about all these great Belgian players, right? De Bruyne and Ed Nazar, and they've got an interesting manager and Axel Fitzel and Thibaut Courtois. And you're like, oh man, we're going to be up against it. We're huge underdogs in this game. And then you come out and like, are better than them for a half. And then it be- a half becomes a large chunk of the game. You feel unlucky at the end of it, and maybe people go, oh, same old Canada. But I, I don't know how you can leave that game feeling anything other than I still think they're going to get out of the group, um, which I did not think going into the World Cup, and be sort of immensely impressed by the manner in which they went out and performed in this match. Canada's the best team in CONCACAF. I don't know any other way to say it. They were the best team in CONCACAF over a 14-game World Cup qualifying campaign in which everyone had their best players as much as they possibly could and the stakes were high. So I I understand that the rest of the world doesn't watch CONCACAF qualifying, but we do. We know what this Canada team has been and could bring to the table here. I was actually disappointed with Jonathan David tonight. I felt like he was a symbol of their lack of of precise finishing and i don't have the the stats in front of me tons of shots but very few on goal and i i just have seen him do too much good stuff in european soccer this is a guy who's on really big clubs lists to buy as a center forward and he just didn't do much in this game tonight and that was disappointing uh that said, Buchanan, I think, is going to go to a bigger club pretty soon. Um, yeah. But um, they looked really good. I think at some point we may have to grapple with the question, is Thibaut Courtois the best player at the World Cup? Wow. I mean, I, I thought you were going to say best goalkeeper. i say, yeah, we could probably you know put that one to bed, especially since Kaylor Navas didn't cover himself in glory today. Uh, maybe he could have had a shout to be. But uh, yeah, I think Courtois, very clearly the best goalkeeper. But yeah, I mean, we saw his influence today. And also, in some ways... The influence is not just about the saves that he makes, but it's sort of the the fear that he puts into opposition players where I feel like they have to hit the exact perfect shot in order to beat him because he's that good. Um, and I think that might have led to some of those shots going off target. I know that Alfonso Davies might have been afraid of him being 12 yards away from him for that penalty. It was a long run-up as well, but it was not a well-struck penalty. Even a decent goalkeeper could have made that save. But yeah, Courtois is that sort of imperious figure in goal uh, that that's really difficult to beat. And you mentioned those chances. They finished the day with more XG than Belgium by 2.57 to 0.76. They were, you know, they created more chances. I, I'm tempted to say they're the better team, but that's not what XG says. XG says that they created the better chances. They weren't better on the day because they didn't finish them. And despite the fact that you get like 0.7 for a penalty, so you still have a good number of chances. They weren't, they didn't put enough of them on target. And you're right. I don't think their strikers uh, were good enough. I do want to hit on one other point. Uh, as it relates to Canada, because we might move on after this. A lot of their team plays in MLS. Yeah. And when MLS players play for the U.S., there's a lot of U.S. fans that go, I don't want to see that player on the field. He plays in MLS. But I thought Alistair Johnston put in a very good performance. 
I thought Kamal Miller put in a very good performance. I think a lot of their other players that um, is Ismail Kone, who's probably on his way out, but impressed this year in MLS for Montreal. I also just named a trio of Montreal players that goes to show how good they were this season. But uh, the, Richie Larea plays in MLS. I thought he was decent on the day. And they didn't look overawed. They didn't look overwhelmed by the occasion. They didn't look like this, this was too high of a step forward. And all the things that, that all, all the arrows that MLS takes uh, be, as it relates to the U.S. team didn't really apply to Canada. So I, I, I hope that uh, some of the MLS batchers out there uh, t- took that for some evidence. I'd be curious to know if there's the same percentage of MLS bashers in Canada as there are in the U.S. Because I, I think it's an affectation that people like to take in the U.S., which is absolutely ridiculous. But in any case, um, second game here, big upset, Japan 2, Germany 1. And this is not as big of an upset as Saudi Arabia over Argentina, but it's still an upset, you know? I mean, I had felt bad. We talked about this, that Japan, I felt, had gotten a bad draw being in a group with Germany and Spain, two recent winners of the tournament. And all Japan did was turn around a 1-0 deficit and win this game. Germany not finishing chances. Um, and yet you felt like Japan, impressive. And, and here they are now in a great position to get out of this group. And Germany now in a really precarious position to not get out of this group, despite the fact, again, we mentioned XG, there's this 3.3 today. Uh, they they did more than enough. And I think, and I thought Landon did a really good job of making this point on the broadcast of uh, Spain and Costa Rica. It was the key today for Spain is to get the second goal. Now, it turns out they got the third, fourth, fifth, <laughs> sixth, and seventh goals as well. But Yikes. Spain sort of put, put, put that game away. But... You know, Germany did not get the second goal when they were clearly the dominant team. They left the door open and we saw and I think it's kind of cool that the U.S. kind of gave uh, American fans, or at least American diehards, um, a window into two of the teams that had pulled off two of the biggest upsets at the World Cup by playing them in September. Because anyone who watched Japan play in September knew that that was sort of possible. And they have a game plan. They have a way of playing. They have an interesting way of playing that can very easily take advantage of of bigger opponents, can take advantage of moments when they're provided to them. And because Germany didn't finish it off, despite the fact I thought they played very well for 65 minutes, they left the door open and Japan took advantage. And we know that they can. And they brought some incredible players off the bench that helped change the game. And we knew that this was possible because we saw Japan and sort of led you down a rabbit hole. How how good is, is this team good? And they are. And they showed it today, and it was really cool to watch. It really was. German, Germany defensively, I was not impressed by uh, entirely in this game. Schlotterbeck, not great at club level for a little while here, and got the start and was at fault, I thought, on, on the second goal for Japan. And um, I look at Japan, and I, I think I've said this before, like it's somewhat similar to the United States in terms of development since the 90s, getting back into the, we're getting into the World Cup, kind of a happy to be there situation. And now they've become a team that wants to sort of expects to get to the elimination rounds. Tough group, no problem. And, and now this Germany-Spain game coming up, Germany's got their backs to the wall. And, and you know, I live with Rafa Honigstein here at uh, uh, our, our house. And I've been listening to him talk on, on his German soccer podcast. And he's, he's pretty... Um, uh, pessimistic about really? Germany's chances. He thinks they could very easily be out on you know, on the weekend. I would feel bad for him because he, he, he I imagine, dines out on uh, a lot of people calling him and asking for German expertise and for a second straight World Cup for that to end after a week and a half. I would feel very bad for him. 
it's it's kind of wild. I'm not used to Germany doing this of like being in a position not to get out of the group stage. You know, it's just not something we've seen from Germany teams that have been so consistent over so many decades and always in the mix to win the thing. It seems like um, it's not uh, Germany 2014. It's not Germany seven. Brazil one. It's it's just not the same thing. And you look at the other big upset of the last two days. We mentioned it, Saudi Arabia 2, Argentina 1, somewhat similar to uh, the Germany upset in the sense that Argentina also goes ahead on a penalty early in the game and you think they're going to be on cruise control the rest of the way. And then Saudi Arabia gets two goals early in the second half. I I mean, you're you're just stunned. I was stunned watching this. And this is an Argentina team that had gone 36 games without a loss, a team that I was predicting would win the tournament. They still can, but still, it's, it's absolutely wild to me to see this Argentina team just get desperate in a sense and, and not really have enough composure toward the end to actually mount uh, a real attack to get the equalizer and they didn't get it. That's the thing that sort of strikes me when I watch Argentina. And I know a lot of this gets laid at the doorstep of Messi. And I don't think all of it is entirely unfair, but they seem to lose the plot at, at moments when they're down, when they, you know, at, at that moment, they give away a goal, they give away another goal quickly. And another team could maybe, you know, fight their way back into the game, create chances. And Argentina had a couple and in the Saudi goalkeeper on the day, was well worth you know his his weight in gold on the day. He was tremendous, but I just kind of felt like Argentina. They start pumping crosses in and trying to win headers and get get angry at the referee, put in bad challenges. All sort of the characteristics of a team that just sort of loses their mind. They lose their collective minds. And I thought that part of their development over this unbeaten streak was sort of losing a little bit of that. And it's not about the individual talents. It's about a team identity. And they know how to come together when they play as a group. And uh, there was that great video, that speech that Lionel Messi gave before the Copa America final as a leader. And it seemed like he sort of is finally coming into his own. And Argentina is losing some of their tropes by winning a major tournament. But they kind of fall back on them here. And that's the part that was disappointing to watch was them fall into the quicksand at a World Cup yet again and not be able to find a solution against the Saudi team that I thought were incredibly intense. The running that they put in was so cool to watch. And you have to give huge credit to Hervé Reynard for the the tactics of employing the high line and the offside trap that I really thought frustrated Argentina in the first half and threw them off their game after all the offside VAR calls that were given. But... Argentina still has to be able to find a way and not lose their minds in the way that they did. I'm with you. I I think that they'll probably end up in the long run being okay to get out of this group. Um, That first half, there were signs of good performance, but it was there. There are a lot of alarm bells that are ringing on the off the back of that performance for me. Well, it's a really intriguing group now because you've got Argentina Mexico this weekend, which you know Mexico didn't get three points against Poland. Uh, nil-nil in that game. And that, to me, was disappointing for Mexico because I think they're a better team than Poland. They should have gotten three points out of that game. They didn't. And now they're facing an Argentina team that needs a win. And Mexico could find itself in a bit of a rough spot heading into the final group game. I 
I don't think that Mexico are, are, are better than Poland. I will disagree with you there. Okay. I think they could have played 180 minutes and not scored a goal. I just, <laughs> I, I, I don't know where their goal was coming from. I really don't. And you look at the, the, the forward line, they start with Henry Martin, which for me, you can sort of, I mean, it, it's a bit harsh to, to, to put it in these terms, but you can sort of track the progress of a footballing nation from World Cup to World Cup on the basis of the, you know, the players who started every position. And the fact that they went four years and went from Raul Jimenez, who was in decent form at the last World Cup, to Henry Martin is just sort of astounding. That like they they tried a bunch of different options. They tried to convert dual nationals. They tried a bunch of different players at a bunch of different clubs and sending players to Europe and keeping players in Mexico. And at the end, that's what they came out with. And then they 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 went to the bench and and could and brought on Jimenez. He didn't make an impact. I just don't know. Like I I think Argentina are going to be comfortable winners at the weekend. I think Mexico are heading for a group stage exit. I, how many times do we need to see Alexis Vega put a shot into <laughs> row 20? How many times? Like, I, like he's one of those players where you can sort of see how scouts might say, oh, that's a talent. But it's it never really turns into something where he emerges and takes a big step forward. Like, I just don't think that he's going to take this massive step forward. And I just don't see enough going forward for Mexico to really cause opposition enough of a problem at this World Cup. Other scores in the last two days. Spain 7, Costa Rica nil. Just what happened, Costa Rica? Like, uh, did did you enjoy that Spain performance? Though I loved it. I love watching start, no, when Spain from, are when Spain are purring. I love watching Busquets. I love watching Busquets. Holy hell! I mean, in in the the Danny Oma goal, absolutely terrific. Just they're fun to watch, you know. And that set the tone for the game. Gavi gets a goal. It also reminds me, just like what's Barcelona doing, spending all this money and in, in going into you know economic problems and, and mortgaging their future when they've got so many good young guys that they've developed. It just makes absolutely should, no sense to me. They should go into economic problems more often because it, it, it kind of, it helps the Spanish national team. They had Gavi, Pedri, and Alex Balde all come on in this game. And we don't even know, I mean, maybe, I mean, Pedri is such a talent. It would, it would seem impossible that he wouldn't have gotten an opportunity, but they all get their starting opportunities because they were that desperate for players. They just threw them out there and they just produced three Spanish national team players sort of by accident. It's crazy. And, and uh, my housemate here, Guillaume Balaguer, actually was at the Spain game, obviously. Uh, he's from Spain. And uh, asked Luis Enrique a question in English that Luis Enrique responded to in English in the press conference. And his English is better than I thought it was. Luis Enrique is one of the most intriguing people of this World Cup for me. He's doing the, the one-hour live stream basically every day on That's Twitter. wild. Somebody told me about that today. I was like, wait, he's doing what? <laughs> every day. Can you imagine Greg Berhalter doing a, li- a Twitch live stream for an hour every day? During I'm, the I, honestly, I would be horrified by the comments. Horrified <laughs> by the comments. Oh man! Um, and then Luis Enrique is like posting like thirst trap pictures on Instagram. He's really enjoying himself, and as long as they're winning seven nil, no one's going to have an issue. I don't think um, the the two nil nils: Morocco nil, Croatia nil, Denmark Tunisia nil nil. Um, you know, I, I guess I would just say speaks well of North African football there that those results are are coming in for those teams. Those are good teams, Morocco and Tunisia. And it's been really cool here to see in the stadiums the amount of support for the teams from North Africa, for the teams from the Middle East, um, you know, whether it's Morocco, Tunisia, Iran, Saudi Arabia. And I, I I come back to like, I think it's 
a good thing that this part of the world is getting to host a World Cup and those teams are getting some home field advantage and more support than they would typically from their fans. I just don't think Qatar is the right location for it. Yeah, and 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 I completely agree. And I, I that's a point that I heard Gary Neville made quite a bit in 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 the run up to the World Cup. I know he's working for BN Sports now, so maybe uh, he was sort of laying the groundwork for eventually going to do that. But um, it, it is interesting that I mean I, I don't know which country you would sort of say is sort of the 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 best country of the North Africa slash Middle East countries to host it, and Qatar certainly has its issue its issues. But I, Neville made a good point in which he said, "At some we're going to have to play World Winter World Cups." if we're going to include the entire world for World Cups, because if you want to play a World Cup in the Middle East, you have to do it in the winter, because if you try to play a, a, a summer World Cup in the Middle East, it'd be insane. It'd be 130 degrees almost no matter where you went. Uh, so so I get that, and and I agree with that point. I'm, I kind of like the fact that now that the World Cup is bigger, you're seeing sort of bigger bids. And I heard today that, you know, Comibol are thinking about a seven-country bid for the 2030 World Cup, and it would basically be all of South America hosting the World Cup. That's awesome. I, I hope that every country gets the chance at some point. It shouldn't just be Western European nations and the U.S. that get the chance to host the World Cup. I think South Africa getting their chance is great. Uh, you know, I would like to see more of South America represented. But yeah, I, I, I think that it is generally a good thing that the World Cup is of the world. Um, but like you said, there might be better places to do that. Yep. Uh, and then uh, France 4, Australia 1. Australia up in that game 1-0, but then France became France again. Olivier Giroud tying Thierry Henry's all-time French goal-scoring record. Pretty impressive from Giroud in this game. And France looking like maybe they won't follow that pattern of four of the last five World Cup winners going out in the group stage of the subsequent World Cup. We'll see what lies ahead for them. Let's talk a little bit about the U.S. men's national team. Obviously, you've got huge, huge game on Friday, Black Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern kickoff, USA, England. And, uh, you know, we talked about this. The U.S. got a point when they wanted to get three, felt like they could have gotten three against Wales. And so they're under more pressure than they would be otherwise um, heading into this game and, and feeling like a result is something that would be pretty important to get at the very least, a point. Uh, what's the most important thing on your mind thinking about this U.S. team heading into the England game? My big thing that I'm thinking about is how. How are the U.S. going to go about achieving something against England? What is the tactic? If you were sort of to de to describe it in something you'd employ in football manager, is it sort of dirty long ball? Is it counterattacking? Is it playing your normal game and trying to do it better than England? Because I, I think the one thing that we've seen at this World Cup is there are moments where you can punch the Giants, right? Sometimes the Giants come to the World Cup and like Spain, you can't lay a glove on them. Even Australia for 10 minutes laid a glove on France and then France laid a few more on Australia and they won that game. But you can attack the Giants. So the question is how? Are there lessons to be learned from the Nations League? What, what did Greg Baralter learn about uh, England's poor performances? How do you sort of turn their natural conservatism against them? How do you negate their biggest influences? I have been trying for a couple of weeks now to come up with the answer. What is the kind of soccer that the U.S. can play to get a result? And I don't think if they tried to hang on for 90 minutes and put 10 players behind the ball, I don't think they're capable of doing that. I, I don't know if they have necessarily the blistering pace on the counterattack 
uh, to take advantage of maybe spaces in behind. I don't know if it's just trying to play your game. You'll have your moments of possession. They'll have theirs. And then you try and be better on the day. You're ultimately playing against a heavyweight. And how do you manage that when England are just better than you? And they've seemed to have found a new influence in Jude Bellingham, who uh, is is going to be one that's nearly impossible to negate because he's so good. So my my biggest thing is how are the U.S. going to do this? And right now, I don't really have any answers. And I know it's not my job to have answers, but I kind of wish to feel a little bit more optimistic going into the game that I at least sort of had a route towards the U.S. winning this game. I mean, I, I feel like if the U.S. is going to do this or get something out of the game, it's going to be because they they don't have the majority of possession. They are going to have some counterattacking opportunities, and they're just going to have to be better in the final third than they were against Wales. They're going to have to play not a perfect game, but something closer to a perfect game than they played against Wales. And I I do hold some solace in the idea that I think the U.S., this U.S. team plays at its best when it doesn't have the majority of the possession and, and has to like break down a low block. And that's not what they're going to see in this game. So, I mean, like I, this idea that England is conservative, I don't know if I totally agree with that. You know, I mean, like maybe more conservative than they should be given the talent at hand. But I wouldn't say as a team they're conservative. I mean, like they've got some explosive players, dangerous players, it freaks me out that Phil Foden doesn't start. Like he can't get in the lineup. <laughs> um, and so their depth is clear. Their depth of, of elite talent is clearly larger than that of the United States. And yet you're only going to have 11 guys on the field at a time. So I don't think depth is going to be a reason for, that the U S would struggle in this game. It's just do the, does the U S have the belief? Do they, put did they just execute better because like even you could see as Weston McKenney was getting tired the other night he just went into that mode he sometimes goes into where he just loses balls and it, it makes you feel like he's not focusing or, or something you're just like what are you yeah, doing like his, man? his first touch is like that of a frying pan it just goes flying off of him and and it, yeah it's sort of moments where he drifts he becomes a passenger and I think he's really, really important because when he's playing at his best and he's capable of this, we've seen it at Juventus, we've seen it in important U.S. games, and especially against Mexico. And so, like, I realize that England is not Mexico, right? But this is, to me, more similar to a U.S. game against Mexico than some of the stuff that we've seen, which is more like the U.S. playing against other CONCACAF opponents. And that's not what this game is going to be like. So I do think Pulisic needs to have a signature game, like a big game. Um, he hasn't had a what I would call a big Pulisic game for a little while. He's capable of it. This, this It needs to happen here. Like, best time it could ever happen, I would say. Completely agree. And I, I like your point about sort of that precision because ultimately we get into a game like this. You go from, let's say, against Wales, you had 10 chances. In this game, you'll have five. And can you do something with one or two of them in order to get a point in this game? You might even need more. And the effectiveness in both boxes thing is a cliche, but it's one for a reason. I wonder if this might be a game for Aaron Long or even Cameron Carter-Vickers, given the the defending you'll have to do in this game, or you just stick with Tim Ream and maybe hope he doesn't pick up a yellow card. I think you um, stick with Ream and Zimmerman. Yeah. I mean, I, they played well the other night, and Zimmerman uh, put in the one bad tackle, uh, but that does not a night make. So, uh, you know, I wonder how many how many changes do you make 
um, because they played really well, but they also exhausted themselves <laughs> on uh, on on Monday night because of how hard they had to work, and the game lasted until midnight. So I, you know, do you bring Aronson in? Is the Reina situation rectified where you can start him? How many more changes do you think about making? I mean, Aronson and Reina, one or both of those guys, I think should and will start for the U.S. And then for me, the question is, is this where potentially Weya gets moved to center forward? Is that the, is now the time that Weya gets moved to center forward? Because Sargent, to me, wasn't all that effective at center forward. And I don't think Haji Wright was that effective when he came on. And so I think Weya has shown and showed the other night that he can finish in that position. I would kind of like to see him as a center forward. I would like to see either Aronson or Reyna um, out wide in, in Weya's spot and Polisic on the other side. Um, I, I would actually lean, it's tough. I mean, I'm not the coach. Like I would actually lean toward Aronson because of his energy, but I'm fine with Reyna. I, I think Reyna has actually a better chance of creating goals and assists than Aronson does. I just worry about his coming out with a hamstring injury in the 25th minute. Right, which is, I think, what Greg Berhalter was concerned about the other night by not putting him in the game. And you don't want to come out and say, I think this player is likely to get injured, but he's probably thinking, I think this player is likely to get injured. And that's why uh, he, he you know, probably didn't want to put him in the game. But at some point, you got to take that risk. I mean, ultimately, you've got three games. He's one of your best players. And ultimately, another injury for him is not your problem. And I know that that sounds uh, very callous to say, but at a certain point, you've got to care more about you and you've got to care more about your team and the next 180 minutes than the you know him potentially missing three months of the Bundesliga season because he got injured again. I just don't, I think it's time to sort of throw caution to the wind and he's one, he's one of your better talents. And like you said, you know, Sargent was ineffective, Wright was ineffective. And I don't think it's necessarily the fault of those players because we've seen five or six players play that position and be ineffective. I think Greg Berhalter's biggest failing so far as a manager is making all of these strikers look ineffective when they're in the game. Look like they can't even, you know, hold the ball up or have a chance to get touches or lose the ball in tight areas or not be in, in the pullback positions to score goals, have easy tap-ins. He has not put strikers in a position to succeed. And that's been my biggest issue with Berhalter so far. It's not all the other stuff. It's he's not put those guys in a position to succeed. So like you say, well, if you know Ferreira's not going to come in and be effective and Sargent wasn't and Wright wasn't, then why not try an unconventional solution in Wea and basically say your job is to run behind Harry Maguire and hope that he makes a mistake. That's our bet on this game. It's not a bad shout. Yeah. I I've Convince myself of this more and more. We'll see. I also convinced myself of Reem needing to start, and he actually started and played well. So. Yeah, um, you're manifesting things, Grant. I don't actually see any changes being necessary on the back line and goal or in the central midfield. You know, I mean, I, I just feel like the front line, aside from Polisic, you can make some changes there that would be helpful to this team. Um, before we uh, go to the interview, what are your Thanksgiving plans? Uh, spend the spend the day with family. Uh, watch a ton of World Cup. You could theoretically watch sports from 5 a.m. until 11.30 p.m. That will get me a lot of nasty glares, so I will try not to do that. Uh, I've got to sort of pick and choose with the World Cup games. Maybe I, I'll have to skip one 
Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the schedule. I mean, the 5 a.m. game has been tough for me. I, I've, I've not been able to make it for any of the 5 a.m. games. I, I woke up today and I put the game on and I fell asleep next to my phone that was streaming the game. So I, I didn't make it for that one. And then, I mean, Brazil opening, Portugal opening. I'm fascinated by those teams. I have Uruguay as a dark horse. I don't know which game I'm going to skip, but I have to figure out a way to, to, to weave in and out of... Uh, Spending the day with family, watching soccer and watching American football as well, because it's not like that's that's slowing down as a result of the World Cup. So uh, a, a fine balance to be struck, no doubt. Well, I hope you enjoy it. I hope our listeners have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And How are you spending I will, yours? I will be going to a Thanksgiving lunch uh, that's being put on by MLS and U.S. Soccer that I am looking forward to. That's very nice. Uh, I assume they'll have found some turkey somewhere. I am not expecting to have any red wine with my turkey, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. We're we're obeying the rules here, um, and in just actually having a couple of hours uh, to enjoy with uh, other media people, uh, other folks from the U.S. soccer community, and who knows, this may be the last time that we ever celebrate Thanksgiving at a World Cup. But uh, we usually celebrate the Fourth of July at a World Cup, so. Uh, the the big American holidays find a way to always be present during the World Cup, so I appreciate that. Well, I hope you enjoy it along with your uh, media, U.S. soccer, and MLS brethren, and we'll uh, reconvene after the U.S. game. All right. Thanks, Chris. Now, here is my interview with Devin Lamoureux. Our guest now is Devin Lamoureux. He's a terrific photographer who is here in Doha at the World Cup. You can find him on Instagram at Devin Lamoureux or on his website at devinlamoureux.com. Devin, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for hitting me up. Yeah, uh, I've admired your work for a while. Uh, follow you on Instagram and um, just it's, it's different in a cool way. And you do a mix of... Um, portraits and, and feature type photography. You also do action photography. You're here doing that at the World Cup. Um, I guess just to start, how did you get into this? Yeah. Um, so I guess if we say this as in soccer photography, let's focus on that because I think that's where I, kind of what I specify in. Um, obviously, can do different things, but uh, that's always the goal or was the dream once I started photography in general. So, um, I grew up playing soccer my whole life. Uh, I was born in New York. We moved to South Carolina when I was in kindergarten, started playing soccer then, um, ended up playing all the way through college, uh, played at university of South Carolina, um, all four years. And then upon graduating, I majored in finance and real estate, but I really like didn't want to do that. I just wanted to do it like my first, the reason I went into it was because I just wanted to make money, I think. And I was like watching HGTV and was like, oh, this seems fun. And like I had an internship, but I mean, the whole mission from the start was to play soccer professionally. Um, and I felt like I was on a pretty good path up until college. Um, I, you know, was brought into like U17 national camp, um, didn't make like a World Cup squad or anything, but you know, I was in the mix. Um, went to South Carolina with scholarship and all that. And then that's where things fell apart a bit. 
um, not for a lack of trying on my end, I think it's just, you know, just wasn't going to work out. It seems so, um, by my senior year, I knew I needed to find a different path after school. So at the time I wanted to make YouTube videos or like, and then eventually progress into like films or, you know, features. And so I got a camera as that's, you know, what you need it seems to start making videos. Um, and I realized making videos is really hard, especially when like no one around me was making videos at the time or like, you know, in any sort of creative field. Um, and so I just started taking pictures instead with the camera and immediately I got like this instant gratification from my friends, family, like the people who, you know, support you no matter what, basically. Um, yeah, can you hear that? Is that all right? I can edit it. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, I got this feeling of, oh, wow, I'm good at this already. Like, which I don't, I, you can, I can look back and like, if you want to, you can scroll to the start of my Instagram <laughs> and see what these people were telling me was good. What um, year was this? This is probably 2016. Okay. Yeah. So I finished playing in the fall. Um, at South Carolina and then still had a semester left of just finishing school. Um, and so, and so yeah, finished 2015 playing 2016, you know, graduated in May. Um, and so in that last semester, I got the camera like around Christmas time. So like within six months I was already like taking photos of my friends and like learning like the basics of photography by myself off YouTube really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so the closest I could get or like the next logical career path was like working in social. So I was a social analyst in Charleston where my family is, where I grew up, um, for how long did I stay? Like five months. I remember a story of like the person who referred me, um, got like a bonus for six months of me being there. And I quit on like five months in like 20 days or something without knowing. Um, and she told me after, um, so I'm, I apologize for that, but it was, so basically what happened is I, at that point I felt like I could start even producing content for the brands that we were doing analytics for. And we did that in, in house at the agency, but it, and I offered, you know, my services a few times and like, they were like, Oh no, you know, it's, we have a team, whatever. And I was like, okay, that's like what I want to do. I don't want to be doing analytics all day. Um, so I looked around Charleston and it felt like there were no opportunities there, um, especially for soccer. I mean, we have Charleston battery, but it's like, you know, still USL and it's a good start for a soccer photographer, honestly. But at the time I just wanted to be a photographer in general. Um, so packed up my stuff, moved to LA, no job. I crashed on a buddy's couch from college. Um, and then I ended up shooting I got a job off Indeed to take photos of like BMW cars at like a dealership. Um, And what happened is when you take pictures of like 20 cars per day and it's like 20 photos of each car, but the lighting is always different and you're trying to, the faster you do the cars, the faster you're done for the day. Mm -hmm. So it's literally like photography boot camp. And what happened is after a year and a half of doing that, I, it's very soulless work, but I was so fast with my camera 
and knew all the settings, knew where everything was, knew I could, you know, not even shooting manually, which, you know, you adjust every setting for how you want it. I could do it based on like just seeing the light versus looking at the screen and seeing what it's showing me in the camera. And I was like, okay, this is not a total waste of time other than, you know, it's also paying my rent and all that. Um, but it was a great job. And I only had to work from like eight to 12 because I could shoot the cars that fast. So then in my free time, I started doing freelance gigs and that's where like my style and you know, the more of the artistic side of it developed. So I, I recognize, and I'm like a pretty self-aware person. I feel like that I had like the perfect storm of like doing the basics and progressing way quicker than someone who's, Oh, I think I'm going to get into photography. Maybe I go shoot a few events. Like I'm shooting every day for, four to seven, eight hours. And that's just different. And I think the approach I had was still from my like soccer days where it's like, I'm going to grind harder than anyone else because one, I like it, but two, I know the benefits of that and I'm not afraid to put in that work. And I think that shows at the end and like where I'm at now. And I mean, I guess to wrap it up, like I started shooting some galaxy games. I arrived in LA right when LAFC was breaking ground Mm -hmm. to where I had like six or seven months, I think to prep myself. I started shooting galaxy games, built my portfolio a little bit and then got in touch with LAFC at the start. So they already had a club photographer, which I knew I didn't want to be at the time. And I still wanted to, you know, I didn't want to be tied down to one, you know, uh, situation. And they were very welcoming and I've had a great relationship with them from the start. Um, but I got to be at their first training session ever, I think at UCLA, I could be wrong if maybe they trained before I apologize, but in my mind, maybe it was the first scrimmage. I don't know. We'll, I'll have to check with them because okay. I tell people that cause I'm proud of it, Yeah. but it just, it's one of those things where like the stars aligned and like, I was exactly where I needed to be literally on the day I needed to be there. Right. Like feeling like, okay, I'm really starting my soccer photography career and my local club is starting their, you know, beginnings. So I made it to their first game. And then after that, I got the attention of like MLS as a whole Adidas, um, some of my other clients right away. And, and up like, obviously I was at that point at a level where LAFC was willing to, allow me in and, you know, hire me for, even though I wasn't making that much, but they, they want there, there's limited spots and they chose me to be there. So I appreciated that and knew that, okay, this is like for real. I'm, I'm in a good spot and on a, on a good path. And yeah. No, thanks for sharing your story. I mean, like, and there's more that I'll ask about here in a second. I mean, like, I guess I should share how I became aware of you and, I, I don't know if I was early on the curve or late on the curve, probably late, uh, but you were essentially for a while embedded with Weston McKenney in, in yeah. Italy. How did that happen? What was it? Yeah, um, I think that's basically from where I left off. That's probably fast forwarding about three or four years, skipping or, you know, it was, it was early. That was, when was that? Probably 2021. Okay. So what happened is, after I was getting attention from MLS and starting to work for them more regularly, we 
or they created in partnership with Adidas in 2018, something called like Creators Network. It's a cheesy name, but it was basically, the concept was great. It's we hire for our key cities, elevated or, you know, more stylized content creators or photographers, videographers to work on special projects that usually are with Adidas players or Adidas based, but also like shooting games and any other like highlighted moments. And that's where we got extra access to the top of the list. You know, we're not just any other photographer shooting with, you know, the standard level of access and with access comes, you know, opportunities. (laughs) And that's also where I think I grew a lot because I was now seeing who like my friends are, but also the competition. If we want to go back to like sport terms and how my brain works of like, okay, I know this is the standard and I'm going to try and push it regularly, you know? Um, so anyways, that happened. COVID, I went to the bubble, which was great. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thanks to again, like being a part of that creators network group, we were now considered like the go-to photographers for MLS went to the bubble. And then after that, we didn't really know what was going to happen next. And I didn't, they cut the program, which the creators network. So I was like, okay, I don't really have like the steady salary. Now I'm more of in that freelance world as a photographer, what are my options? And for a while I'd been, had this feeling of, I need to go to Europe. I was like, that's where obviously currently the best soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, is being played. The bigger players, and as a kid, that's what I grew up watching, like everyone else. And I was like, all right, how do I get there? I've shot some games, like, sporadically at that time already, Real Madrid games, um, Barcelona, stuff like that, but not consistently. And I was like, I think also it was after The Last Dance came out. Mm -hmm. And I love the storytelling aspect, and I think that's something I'd been pushing in my work for a long time. Um, and I said, well, I probably had the best bet working with an American. And I think also me being American, the story just hits closer to home literally. And so really in my mind at the time, I was like, well, it's gotta be Wes or Christian. Mm -hmm. Wes is an Adidas athlete. And like at the time in my perspective he seemed a little bit more interesting to me mm-hmm. um not to say christian's not i you know he's a super cool dude um but just that extra personality that west carries I, and i would watch very closely and i'm very observant of like i would see him on tv where he's like messing or joking with like people when he shouldn't be but it's his personality <laughs> yeah and I picked up like this before I met him and I'm watching and I see like the little things he was doing. He would like mess with the fourth official or like just things in like big time moments where he's like, I'm like, okay, this is like golden. Um, plus I love his playing style and you know, was just a fan in general. So I used my Adidas connections to try and set up a meeting with Wes. That's the hardest part. So I probably had this idea. I'm thinking now it's end of 2020 um, December, um, just shot MLS cup. And I was like trying to figure out what's going on. And no one's really saying that there's going to be opportunities photography wise for MLS, um, at that time. So I was like, okay, it's a good time. I work with Adidas. They, 
somebody does me a favor, gets me in touch with Wasserman. Um, his reps. Yep. His reps. And I, funny enough, set up a meeting. They're based in Miami. I'm in LA. I missed the call by an hour. Oh no. And like I was on the computer, like ready to go. Call them immediately once I realize they're laughing. Like, turns out it it's Corey Gibbs um, and his partner Charles at the time. And I realized that they're serious guys and do serious work, but they're normal guys. Like, you never know. And you see, like, TV shows. It's one of my first real interactions with agents. Um, and they're like, don't worry about it, dude. <laughs> like, we'll set it up again. But it, of course, like that happened. And I never miss stuff like that, but it was just a timing thing. Yeah. Um, so talk with them. I, I created like a whole deck. So like, I don't come to things as, you know, empty handed and no planning. Hey, I, you know, I'd love to shoot Wesson. Like, yeah, so does everyone. Um, so I had like why it makes sense, like probably like, I can't remember, but 10 or 15 pages of like why this should happen. Um, and what I thought was Wes is a great player. He's super interesting. He's has the personality. Um, he already scored against Barcelona, like the scissor kick. And it's like the dude has less than a million followers on Instagram. And you look at like anyone coming off the bench in the NBA and they have quadruple what he has. And it's like, dude, this guy needs to, you know, he needs help with his social and growing his brand. Um, but also us soccer in general needs to, you know, this was the start of how can I help grow the game in the U S yeah. Well, you know, make their players more popular. was my, was my goal. Um, and then from a personal photography interest and, you know, my own career, it's like, I love Walter Eos, obviously. Yeah. So it's like, that's the... Famous Sports Illustrated photographer. Yes. yes. If you don't know him, like, look it up. I-O-O-S-S. Yes. Um, and I have his book, Rare Air, with, with Michael Jordan. And that was like the blueprint of... And what I love is all the photos aren't taken at the same time. So I realized this, and I told Wes and Corey and everyone, like, this is a long-term project for me. I don't have to be with Wes every day. It's just to document his career. Um, and anyways, yeah, again, long story short, because all these things, they, they, take, they take a lot of time. Like, I think some people, because I've been having conversations with a lot of photographers here, and it's, it takes a lot of time. You may think, like, oh, it's just one conversation, and sometimes it is one conversation that needs to happen, but, like, to get people at the right time and all the pieces in place, and you have to be prepared, it's, there's a reason that, not everyone is doing it, you know? Um, well, uh, some quick background for yeah. our listeners. So Walter Yost, who you just mentioned, built a relationship that was unbelievable with Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan, just his background, did not speak to Sports Illustrated, the magazine, the writers, even though he knew many of them and had relationships after the SI did a cover when he was playing baseball that said Baggett Michael on the cover. So Michael Jordan would not talk to SI Magazine, still won't actually, he, he holds things. Um, but even despite that, Walter Yost, the photographer for Sports Illustrated, Michael continued to not only work with, but to do like books with, yep. like photography books. And I was always so admiring of how Walter built that relationship 
and that trust that was there that even though Michael wouldn't talk to SI, he still always dealt with Walter. So just quick background on that. Yeah, honestly, it's really incredible. I mean, for me, he's the top sports photographer of, of all time. And maybe there's other photographers who, you know, say, oh, I was here for this moment, this moment. But like, so are a lot of people. It's the moments that are behind closed doors that interest me. If it doesn't interest you, like it's okay, or you know, it's not your top priority. It's, you know, apples and oranges to each their own. Like that's why there's a lot of photographers with different styles. But what brings me the most like interest and joy and, you know, whenever I feel like I get a shot that is much more intimate or, you know, I know what it took to be in that room and I'm proud of the relationships and it's almost like a family member on that level. Yeah. Like I'm very grateful for him. You know, I can, you know, continue talking about it, but the relationship and that I built with Wes and still have and the way he was so welcoming to me. So how, how embedded did you get with Wes? How much time did you spend with him in Italy? Yeah. So I, Wes isn't the best communicator, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> Maybe his, you know, friends, family agents will attest to that. Um, so he, I was on one FaceTime with him. Um, he showed me his house was just like in, in a fun way, like almost like MTV cribs. Like I think he was having it like some people over for dinner or something. He's like, Hey, this is like what to expect. Like, you know, just, he was excited and happy for me to be coming. And at that time, Wes had been in Italy for about seven months. And I don't think he, he had some friends on the team, but at Juventus, like, and I can, I, I, uh, I'd say I could go into it later, but just they don't all hang out all the time. Yeah, it's very professional. You have maybe one friend on the team that'll come over for dinner, you know, once a month or something. It's not like your college buddies and they're over all the time. And Wes is still a college kid, college age, you know, twenty one, yeah. twenty two at the time. And so, I. Um, flew to Europe. It was during COVID still. So I went on like a working visa basically to be allowed into Italy. Um, but first I thought I had to wait in Poland or something to quarantine for 20 days. I I think it turned out to like be a misread on my part, but I had friends in Poland and it worked out. But while I was there, I only talked to Wes like two text messages and I basically background like didn't have an apartment anymore, sold my car. Like I was going to go over there for a week or two, see how it was, then maybe go back, stay with my parents just to like settle and then, or, you know, do whatever Wes wanted to do. All I'm saying is I I hadn't heard from Wes. I'm in Poland. (laughs) I've sold my car. I don't have an apartment anymore. My stuff is in storage in LA and I'm very much in like a transition phase. And my attitude was, if it doesn't work out with Wes, we hate each other. Like, I'll do something else. It's okay. Um, but I was, you know, feeling good about it. So a few more days, I get to Italy. I'm in Turin. I have an Airbnb for two weeks. Um, I don't know. I wasn't budgeting properly. I was like in the center of the city, like literally staying above like Louis Vuitton store. Like I, I just wanted the full experience. Um, and I hadn't heard from Wes. And so it was the first day still, but I'm, I'm there. Hadn't heard from him probably in three or four days. 
And then I text him like, hey man, like I already texted him twice, just giving him updates with no reply. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I uh, texted him, hey, I'm, you know, at my Airbnb, this is the address, like, let me know if you want to meet up. At this point, I was happy at any time, like in the week, like I don't know his schedule. So I was like, just let me know when you're free. He's like, I'll be there in 20. He like replied right away. He's leaving training. And I'm like, okay, thank God. Like I, I was, I already had a conversation with my mom. She's like freaking out. She's like the overprotective parent. She's never, she has lived in Europe for a little bit, but lately she hasn't been traveling around, you know, just mom things. She's busy. And she was paranoid. Um, and slowly I was growing more and more concerned as the lack of communication. But anyways, he says, uh, yeah, I'll be there in 20. And I don't know what car he's in or anything that's still, it was my second time in Italy, but didn't know the area at all. And then he, I'm just waiting outside in 20 minutes because I didn't want to like text him again. And I hear like music just blasting through the streets of like Turin, which is like a quiet place <laughs> from like a mile away. And I'm like, oh, that's him for sure. <laughs> like, so he pulls up in the Jeep and he's like blasting music and picks me up. And from there it was like, okay, this is great. Um, went back to his house, showed me around, um, introduced me to his chef who is his right-hand man basically. And his base, he's not just a chef. Patrick is like his fixer, his any issue. Patrick is the solution always. Like he's an incredible person. Um, I stayed there the first day he was going to play poker at like, um, Arthur's house at the time with like Dabala and those guys. So like they do get together, but it's not that frequently. And I was like, I don't want to intrude on the first day he was inviting me. Um, so I went back to the Airbnb once came back the next day to his house and never left after that. So like, from there, I stayed with Wes. I could only stay 90 days at a time on the working visa, so it was roughly 90 days. Um, we traveled a decent amount when we could um, during those times, but it was still COVID, so like you had to be very cautious. Um, and yeah, during that relationship, there was, or during that time, the relationship was just like two friends, really. And so from a photo perspective, which is, I think is what we should get into. Yeah. Like he, Wes is very photogenic. Um, and I think in a group, he really shines and like stands out it, when we're by ourselves and more in a friend space, but it's still like in my photo mind, like, Oh, this could be a good photo. This could be a good photo. He cl shuts down and closes off a bit, which is normal. I think, and there's times where, and this was the biggest challenge of the working side, the friend side or like the, you know, the relationship was easy and natural. I think it was me trying to respect his space and his free time, but still pr pr like take photos that are, there's enough of them to tell a story. And I found it really hard because I felt like I was, I felt like he, if I was had the opportunity to take a photo, it was more because he was letting me, not because he wanted it. 
And so what I realized is pretty early that this wasn't going to be what I thought originally, where it'd be like, oh, I'd have, you know, five pretty solid photos each week, just guessing, not holding myself to that. But like five photos that, you know, if I'm spending that much time with them, you would think it would make sense. But what I realized is I valued the relationship more than the work, which I, I think was the right decision. Um, but from a photo perspective, it, it wasn't as effective and efficient as I would have liked. And it's fine. That's just how things work. And I think I grew a lot from that realizing, okay, like, and also Wes is still 23 years old. Right. There's a his career is still ahead of him as we hope. Um, and I realized that I don't have to rush. I think a lot of those photos of Michael in that book that is the blueprint, it, he was probably 30, you know, 28, right. 29, whatever. So I realized that and adjusted my time frame. Not that I hold myself to anything like officially, but it was just, yeah, sometimes you have to understand that you can't force everything to happen, especially when you're dealing with someone of Wes's nature and, you know, someone who has agreed and happily accepted you into their life in some capacity. So, yeah, I mean, I think now where we're at, I stayed for three months, went back, came back to L.A., um, waited like it was the summer. So Wes, and Wes came to the U.S. for the off season. So I got to still be with him and, you know, we did things. Um, and then... Yeah, went back for another stint. And then after that, uh, MLS was picking back up. Um, I was getting a lot of jobs in LA that are freelance clients. Um, and it seemed like the right time to come back. And I realized that, yeah, it was just the right time, basically, to move on. And, you know, now I just pick up pieces where I can. And Wes and I still have a great relationship. Um, and we can even talk about some more things with that because I think it's still relevant even here in Doha. But yeah, I mean, okay. So I got questions. Yeah, that's uh, the thing. Like, like I, I, it's, the stories are long, and I'm cutting good. them very short. No, I know. You could probably turn this into like a three part podcast yeah. interview. Um, so, have, how much of the the West stuff have you published? Very little. Okay. Not that I have a ton, but like the only place you could see it would be like on my Instagram and I could like scroll through now and say, I probably only have one or two posts dedicated to like spending time with Wes and two of them. Uh, maybe there's three. Um, but two, two of them are like just because we work together on a campaign. So here's yeah. the thing. I think I would like to say that is that Wes never paid me. Mm -hmm. He paid arcs like for dinner he paid for, I'm not paying him rent when I'm there. Yeah. Um, he paid for travel. So it's like, I'm a hundred percent benefiting from the relationship guaranteed, obviously. And I, I was always super appreciative of that, but it was also what he would do for the chef or, you know, right. another friend. Um, but I never asked for like salary in exchange for photos. And I think that's also maybe where, um, there were less photos because for him, like 
if he was paying me, I would be like, Hey dude, like I want to make sure I'm holding up my end of the deal. Right. Here's, you know, your 10 photos of the week or something. Um, but again, Wes didn't want that. I, it would be, he would have to shoot something for Adidas like casually. And obviously I'm there, I'm going to shoot it and try and make him look as good as possible. And it would be torture to get him at, to go outside and, and do it because when you work that hard at training and I think this is something that like if you're not in that space and you see these guys and sometimes they get criticized that their life is so easy and you know oh you're making this much money you should do that you know you should be happy to do this but the reality is like you're he's playing at the highest level every day in practice fighting it's what you know he's not a guaranteed starter every you know throughout the entire season he has to really earn his spot and when you're, you know, at the time training with Ronaldo and people like that, like the level is so high, he's exhausted every day, comes home. And then, you know, we're there as his friends, which, you know, it's, it was usually myself and Patrick and sometimes his agents, but it's like, even we don't want to like add to his stress. Sometimes he just falls asleep on the couch midday and, you know, needs to relax and it's understandable. I mean, I just went for a one mile run and, you know, I'm a pretty fit guy, but it's like, I want a nap. Like, <laughs> so it's, I think people need to cut athletes a little bit more slack when it comes to that. It's something good for me to know. And I, I've done this a long time, but just to remind myself when somebody, as I've gotten older, I, when somebody gives you an interview, they're giving you a lot, Yeah, you know, and something of themselves and you need to be conscious of what all else they're doing. Yep. Um, so are you doing stuff with Wes here in Doha? Um, not directly. I'm, I'm shooting the games and sending him photos after that. And he's appreciative. I sent photos like to his mom and stuff, but I think that's an, another conversation we can talk about is what I would like to have been doing here versus what I am. Okay. And it still ties into the Weston and us soccer conversation. And maybe we segue into that, but um, yeah, that's up to you. Yeah, let's yeah, do it. Let's do it. So let's see, like I, I've paid attention to U.S. soccer my entire life. I mean, I was like as a kid, partially in the program um, at times. I remember seeing photos of Landon Donovan as a kid. I was like, you know, reading Landon Donovan books. Like I think he published one book at one point I, I read in like, I was a kid in elementary school going to the library and only reading like the sports books. <laughs> yeah. Like, nice. So anyways, um, and I felt like back then there was such a tie to the players. I don't know why maybe. And, and I really need to look into it more, I think, but I'm also more focused on the future and how we can, what, what matters now. The world's very different back then from reading library books to seeing their social medias. And, you know, that's where people are getting in touch with these guys and feeling connected and I think there's so much opportunity with this team as everyone does being their age, their personality, their, you know, quirkiness and, and also their energy that it's, you know, has inspired people to be excited about U.S. soccer the last four years now, probably since they've been building and growing together. And we're finally at this place and it's like, do we like really know these guys? Like, you know, you're a writer and you are probably know more info about Wes than most fans, but still it's like, you know, you're interested in the behind the doors things and, and we don't have this and it, there's an appropriate amount of sharing and there's, you know, 
oversharing. Right. But there needs to be more, and it could be being shot right now, and I'm sure there's people here doing stuff. But it's like, I know for a fact from Wes that the player buy-in isn't like the Michael Jordan buy-in with Walter, the buy-in Wes has with me, you know, and it's the buy-in that I see Canada has with some of their media team. Why that is can be, you know, speculated, but there was opportunity and it's something that like I push for and I always try and hold myself to like certain standards of like I, I've, I've gotten to where I am by pushing pretty hard on things and taking risks by putting myself out there and, you know, letting people know what I want to do directly instead of being like, oh, you know, this could be cool. It's like, no, I want to do this. Here's why. And here's why it would work. And that's how I got to where I am now. That's why I'm shooting the World Cup. Like, it's a lot of conversations like that where you're, you know, risking, uh, I guess, rejection and also realizing that people aren't on the same page or you're not good enough and they don't want you to be there, whatever. So I feel like I could have contributed a lot to documenting this team and I haven't, and I've in certain spots like press for that opportunity and haven't received any help other than MLS, you know, begging us soccer to bring me here just so one they MLS respects and understands like what I my value is and I'm so grateful for that relationship and I wish US soccer would be on the same page and for example like we're in a press conference the first day I get here I told Wes I was coming on this day but there's no way he remembers this was three days ago before their first game and there's probably like 60 people in the room Wes has to do a press um, conference with um, Serginio Dest and I was there yeah. yeah and after the and this is again it's it's so many things we can talk about but Wes does a press conference I'm not sure he sees me I'm in the back um, and then after he gets up and like runs over and gives me a big hug and I think that got a lot of people's you know attention and caught them off guard with like who is this random person in the back because a lot of US soccer people don't know me huh. um, and it's that those moments are where forget all the photos that you know Wes has helped work on me with together or work together with me on like that's where he progresses my career the most hmm. and I'm most grateful for the time we spent together from a work perspective you know you have yeah. to separate it because there's obviously the personal you know um benefits or personal uh how do you say it you know things that you love about that relationship yeah but that was a moment where it was like, okay, he gave me a lot of power, I felt like, and a lot of, um, yeah, just it, it made it feel like everything we've done is worth it and we're moving in the right direction. My sense is Wes is such a central figure on this U.S. team. And I've had very good interactions with him over the years, and, and I fully understand that a photography relationship is different from a writing relationship. Yeah. But if you're cool, if Wes is cool with you, probably everyone on that team is going to be cool with you in a yes. similar way, because it's very hard to get to be cool with Wes uh, for a number of reasons, not because he's a bad guy. No. 
It's just the level he's at. Yeah. Does I, that make sense? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think I could attest like another very brief story was like, I went to, it was What is the tournament they played in Denver? Um, nations league, nations league. And they played against Mexico and won right. that game. And then we went to Salt Lake and they played, it was either friendly or something. Friendly against Costa Rica. Yeah, and Wes didn't play and a bunch of guys didn't play. Um, but I went to that as well and just had a hotel in the, in the same room. And like, we all went to dinner and then after dinner, and like I was with the guy, like the whole team, which was a first, like I'm not saying that happens regularly or, you know, trying to act like I'm with them all the time. Um, but I met a lot of the guys there. Everyone was super nice. I was the only person other than like maybe one or two other people that weren't on the team that was invited to this. And then after dinner, like there's like eight guys in my room. I don't know why my room got, you know, chosen, but this is the thing. And I've brought this to us. Well, not to us soccer, but who I feel like could have helped me, which like, We'll see if I want to like say this. I feel like it's okay, but ISI like photos who like run the a lot of U.S. soccer. They're probably their biggest contributor. I assume. I don't know how all the you know legal things work and who has rights to what or who makes the decisions. But that was who I was pushed to. So, Rich um, from Wasserman. Rich Motzkin. Yes, he did me a huge favor because of my work with Wes and said, I expressed to him, I want to work with us soccer and help grow the players and the story of this team. He said, these are the people to talk to. And he talked to us soccer and us soccer pushed me to ISI. So then I'm eventually I get on a call with ISI and I'm like, Hey, like, how can I help? Like, this is what I want to do. And in order to do this, I just need access. Um, you don't even have to pay me for it at first. Cause I, I knew it was going to be hard to like get it. And I had a conversation and it, I think they got me like one credential to a game. Didn't even ask for the photos. Like it was just, and I didn't need, I don't need their help to get a credential, but basically it was a no. I was like, can I, I wanted to go to a training camp. I think it was in, um, it was in like a, Central American state or country. Um, and I was like, just all I need is a hotel room. I can crash with someone. Doesn't matter. Like, just let me go to training. And then as long as I'm there and they're like, yeah, that won't work because like, you'll need a COVID. T-. And it's like, yeah, like I'll, it's, I'll just be one of you guys. It's the same. Like, but there are just like a few excuses there that I felt like didn't really make sense. And he's like, well, you have to really like, work your way into the team. It's like, no, the guys are in my hotel room. I'm with the team. Like I can DM and I'm, I'm not saying this to like brag or anything. Like it's just over the time I've sent guys photos, I've met them in different things. And so I can like message a couple guys and it's not like I'm talking to them every day, but it's, you know, they know me. You're in. And they wouldn't be surprised if I was there. And I think they would be very welcoming. And also it's not just like me forcing my way. Like, they enjoy and appreciate my work. So if I felt like I've never talked to these guys, you know, I'm just a photographer who's maybe is accredited other places and, you know, has a good resume. It's, it's different. These guys tell me that I'm doing a good job and they, they like my photos. So it gives you confidence to go into these conversations and say, you know, 
I think I deserve to be here, or I know I deserve to be here. I'm wanted here by the people who matter here. What's the issue? Like, and what the issue is, is you can only have so many photographers and there's only room for so many people and certain people have been there for a long time and enjoy the job, which I would too. It makes total sense. So I don't fault them at all for that. The big question is, and I think needs to come from U.S. soccer, is what's more valuable for our brand and for our players? Is it respecting and doing the best we can for people who have helped get us here? Or is it, but, but I, and I think this is subjective, but are these people taking us where we need to go now? Or do we need to try something new that seems to be in what the players want? Why does it have to be an either or though? Because like... For me, it doesn't. There's, there's like action photography, which it seems to me like what ISI does. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, you do action photography. You're at games. You'll be, you're at games here at the World Cup. But you're also an embedded guy yeah. who earns trust, which is very hard to do, but also very different from the action photography. Yeah. Totally different. And if that, if no one is doing that right now, why should there even be an issue? Yeah, no, I would agree. And I, you know, I think it's twofold. Maybe I I could be wrong, but sometimes it's posed as like a budget and travel issue. There's only physically so much room on a plane, on a bus, in a van, in a hotel. Again, I didn't ask for any money at the time just because I know once I'm in, I'm in. And this is the second part is once I'm in, I think it's more of, and I could be wrong. And like, I'm, I've never had a conversation about this with, you know, ISI. And I don't know what they would say if I did. Um, and I, I, in no means am I trying to like, you know, attack them or anything like that, but it's the situation that they do good work by the they way. They do good like work. They're good photographers and otherwise they wouldn't have the opportunity. Um, but it's, I think once I'm there, it's also maybe a bit of a fear thing that, okay, you can't get rid of him. Maybe, I don't know. Or now it opens the doors to even more people coming. Or if the players are all friends and buddy, buddy with me and liking my photos and not sharing their photos or, you know, there's been talks before of other photographers, freelance, getting media credentials and the players end up sharing their photos and then all of a sudden they stop getting media credentials. So it's, it's a thing. It exists. And people are starting to pay more attention to it in the photography community. And I mean, I made a post that you, we talked about outside of the podcast before, but uh, probably a week out of the world cup where it was just like the, what it was actually was a Fox soccer world cup promo, um, picture probably taken by Getty or someone at Fox with, you know, it's just basic, but the players look terrible and it was still shared. So I think it's a, it was just what kind of set me off a little bit on something that's been resonating a, wa- a long time with me and my peers and you know my group of 
photography uh, comrades, I guess. Um, I mean, ba basically here, sorry to interrupt, but like FIFA and photographers for FIFA get this amazing time with each player before the right before the tournament in their US or whatever country's yeah. uniform. And over the years they've done different things. I don't know if you remember the the sort of video gif arm folding thing they did with players like whenever they would have lineups that they would put out on the on the the television screen and we used to have fun writing about the World Cup of arm folding because you had literally different players folding their arms the exact same way. It's like you have this access and you're doing this with it. Yeah. It and seems ridiculous. And sometimes it's so it's not so much. And I had so many messages about this, by the way, like I have, I think on Instagram now, it's like uh, 10,000 followers or something. And normally I'll still only get like maximum i just had some of my like favorite photos ever that i took at the argentina game of messi and it's like it, those are getting shared a decent amount and i have like a thousand people watch my story so when i shared this and this was before i've gotten a lot of followers in between the two but so i would say you would expect less of less views and feedback and whatever on a post from two weeks ago compared to now I had like 2,500, 3,000 people see it. And literally I was replying to messages all day, like probably 200, 250 messages. I would say 99% were all, wow, thank you for saying this. Like, I agree 100%. And basically what I said was, when is US soccer really going to capitalize on this narrative of the players and on a daily basis, provide them with the highest quality of content that we possibly can. Because anything less than that feels like a waste to me. And it's not, I know it's not a budget issue because there's people out there like myself who want to do it and will take pay cuts to do it. Now, you know, when you it comes live. to a real conversation, if there is one like, we know our worth, but it's that bad in our opinion. And I, I would say when I say us, it's like any, like if you're shooting MLS cup at through MLS and there's like five or six of us that are considered and have earned these spots to be, you know, the priority bib holders and we're all, you know, under 30 and players are shared, like, this is what gives us the confidence to say this. Um, we all feel like we can contribute, want to contribute, the players want us to contribute, and we know what we could bring to the table that anytime we're sharing these things stand out, Nike wants to use our work, Adidas wants to use our work, like the backing is there. And for some reason, we're hitting a wall of, you know, no, you can't help us basically. And I know it's more complicated than that, but we want to figure it out. And I can say we, but even I can change it to I want to figure it out. Right. Like I'll only speak for myself. Um, and so, yeah, that's the goal. I mean, for the next, and you, you asked me like, am I doing anything here with Weston? And it's like, no, but it's like, why not? Like, why am I not with all the players? And so what something ISI brought to my attention is like, oh, well, there's a, you know, players rights agreement and there's contracts in place we can't photograph the players at certain times and it's like okay but 
I can. Like, I won't work. Like, I don't have to work for you guys. I, to be honest, I don't care to give you guys more money. Like, if I'm working directly under, you know, within ISI, I'm a contracted photographer. They have probably rights to the images. But it's like, if you care about U.S. soccer and the full documentation of it, it shouldn't matter if you're benefiting from it or not. U.S. soccer is. And I think the underlying story and like what's my motivation out of it is like I was the young kid that's seeing these Donovan pictures or like you know it doesn't have to be an American player but seeing the Joga Benito campaigns with Nike and it's like I literally have Joga Benito like tattooed on my back because of it and I did it when I was like 15 nice and it just changes your life and right now although soccer is growing in the U.S. I feel like I don't know the numbers but you get the vibe that it's really you know, pushing. It will only continue through right. 26 and hosting the world. Right. Yeah. And it's like, why can't we maximize it and connect these kids to these players who there's kids on Instagram now who are like, I don't know, kids have phones at like 10 years old. Like they're seeing all this stuff. And when you put a picture or like when you allow Fox or FIFA to share a picture of the team that makes them look like a joke. And then you see players like Mbappe and what like, so what I did in the post is I shared what an example of what France shared the same day. And it's really nice work. It's like, it could have been shot in a studio, but it could also, you know, you could dumb it down a little bit to make it more practical. And it's simple. And they brought in an outside creator or photographer. Um, They credited him. And it's like, it makes sense. Like someone like the French national team photographer maybe couldn't have produced that it's not his skill set doesn't mean he's not you know valuable but they recognize the moment and now they have every player looking like a superhero and our guys look like you know uh i don't like it's just not good where anyone they see see that by the way the players are aware of oh yeah i had i had players on the team message me in the press conference that I mentioned that Wes came up and gave me a hug after he's like, the first thing he said was, yeah, bro, those photos, I look like a, like, I look ridiculous. He didn't say that exactly, but I can't say what he said. But so players recognize it. And so then people wonder, oh, why don't they want to shoot with us? Why, why are the players like not letting us shoot them off the field? They, because they don't, they see what happens sometimes when you guys do work with them. So it's, the water's flowing in the wrong direction currently. The players, and that by that I mean like, the players aren't asking these guys for extra photos. They aren't asking for, hey, like, my family's here. Can you come, like, grab a photo real quick? Hey, like, I'm going to be in my room. Do you want to shoot a photo that I could share before the game? Like, no. But if the certain people were there, like, I think myself that could change. And then, oh, you have these posts and these, you know, more opportunities for young soccer fans in America or old, it doesn't matter. But, you know, I like to focus on the truth. Connecting with these guys and being, you know, feeling that they're closer. And that's the end goal, I think. And that's, and I could be wrong, but I think that's how we progress soccer and get people more excited and make them feel like, Christian Pulisic, for example, really is the LeBron James of soccer because his presence is felt like that, not looking like a kindergartner, you know, picture day photo. 
right. which those are necessary beasts, but, and that's, that's a different thing. I think like, I recognize that sometimes outside sources are going to shoot the players. That's fine. You're not going to be able to stop it, but also like then back it up and us soccer post something right after that's like, this is what our player really looks like. Like we know someone took these photos right. and they're not great. This is what we have. And we don't have that. And it's frustrating because we, we could, and there's no reason we don't. Is there a film shooting behind the scenes right now that's sort of approved with U.S. soccer? I, I believe so. I mean, there's been an announcement. I've seen the folks, they were with the team in yep. Spain around those friendlies. Yep. I, was, I wasn't sure when that film's coming out. At one point, I thought it was coming out before the World Cup, but they're still here. I've seen the same Well, people. I would imagine that they're capitalizing on leading into 2026 in that story. Okay. Which is great. And I'm all for that. It's similar to actually what you're, the, the types of work you want to do, but it's video. Sure. And it's video is necessary too. And I think, I don't know those guys personally um, and would never like judge anything before I see it. So I'm, I'm excited to see it and I hope it's in the right direction. And I think people having that access is important. And yeah, again, if it's video, then why don't we have the photos as well? Um, it, it is fascinating because this happens, and I know this is very inside baseball for listeners if you're still with us, but I remember doing a story on Bob Bradley when he was the Egypt coach, and I went to Cairo in 2013, and he was getting close to getting Egypt to the World Cup. This was a real story, and so I was there to do a written magazine story, but he had not one but two documentary films following him. And it was a little crazy because behind the scenes, the two documentary film crews would not acknowledge each other's presence. It's <laughs> and, interesting. And so it became a, a thing, but that's two of the same platform, right? Both documentary films, you know, like if there was a still photographer behind the scenes with the U.S. team, I think that wouldn't interfere. That would be complementary to a film that's being yeah. done. Yeah, no, I would think so. Um, and it's multifaceted, even to the video portion. It's like, so I, I just started an agency called Starting Eleven that I founded with my partner, Casey Wirtz, out of Kansas City. Um, he was a part of the Creators Network program as well, but was like the go-to video guy. And he would, like, he's run an agency of like eight or nine employees in Kansas City, done a bunch of work for sporting, as well as Adidas now. And, you know, basically what happened is, he had his agency, but it wasn't soccer specific. And he realized that he had the most fun and felt the most fulfilled when working on soccer projects with myself or another person like me. Um, and so he came to me and said, you know, he's a soccer fan. He didn't grow up playing as much as I did. And he recognizes it, which is, I think, the first step. Right. Yeah. And he's like, I want your level of like passion and authenticity and I can help provide some of the structure, the production knowledge, the tools, physical, like, you know, he has equipment, everything. And also some of the labor that has already been working on soccer projects uh, around the country and for other countries as well. Um, and I was like, yeah, dude, no brainer. Like, I think it's imperative that soccer people and people with soccer backgrounds are the ones that are producing some of these, this new wave of 
soccer content and media that's going to be coming out, especially with MLS and the Apple TV deal. But even for the U.S. soccer stuff, too, it's like, I don't know these guys, so I hope this is the case. But I would be upset if we had, like, non-soccer people shooting and they're just sports people because it's different. Right. And it's, it's, you can have a skill set, but if you're not, like haven't been in the on plenty of soccer shoots or understand the game on a level that is equivalent with players they one won't feel confident in the result two will feel awkward on set when they you ask them to like toss a ball back and forth with their hands like right and the storytelling is just there's no way for it to be as good you can't have like i can't i'm in you know shooting the world cup for soccer there's no way I could be the best hockey photographer. It's right. impossible. I hope not. Like, hope, right. you know, and I wouldn't want to be. But it's like, there's intangibles that come with having that mind. And so that was the idea behind starting 11 is that we want to ensure and offer our clients who are working on soccer related things that at no point can you be called out for being unauthentic, called out for, you know, this doesn't make sense here. And we can also give you ideas that you may not have because you didn't grow up playing that are, you know, in that world. And I think growing teams, brands, clubs, brands, U.S. soccer's brand, hopefully at some point is all on the table and what we want to do. Um, and it's something that, yeah, I'm super excited about. And, and I think I can have more influence than on my photos alone. No, it makes total sense. I'm very glad that you're starting your own agency because as someone who owns my writing site now, who owns my own podcast, that freedom is really important. I yeah. underestimated just how important the liberation would be to be my own boss yeah. um, and do the content I want to do. And also it helps, you hope, on the business side eventually too, um, and that's a process. Yeah. But like, you've done so much of the hard work already. I just want to wrap up real quick with um, very different skill sets to be embedded in, in doing feature photography and action shoots at games, at World Cup games, like yeah. you're doing here, uh, like you did at the MLS Cup final, where you had some very unique, for me, like from my perspective, shots of some cool moments where there are still lots of photographers around, but I could tell, I can tell yours sometimes. Uh, like, um, so I worked a lot over the years at Sports Illustrated with a photographer named Simon Broody, mm-hmm. who to me is almost like an athlete in the way he shoots World Cup games, any games. Why is that? Um, it's, it's a workout, man. Like, and, and just, I've observed him sometimes, how he goes about things. He blew me away at the 98 World Cup final. He has a photograph of... Brazilian Ronaldo, OG Ronaldo, who there's a whole story behind how he wasn't in the starting lineup first. He had a seizure that day, but he he was in the lineup. He wasn't himself during that final. And he is on rushing to Barthez, the the French goalkeeper in the final. And Barthez goes low on him. And Ronaldo's flying in the air above. And Simon Broody got that moment better than any photographer at the world cup final. So yeah, the reason I ask why is cause it's interesting. I definitely 100% have a 
soccer player, elite athlete mentality when it comes to shooting and my career in general. And like, I don't mind on the right platforms or at the right times, like expressing that. Cause I think it'll help other photographers. And I think the only like downside to it is that maybe if someone doesn't see photography in the same way as I do at times, or at least the, the sport of photography, then maybe they like, it's like when you're playing pickup and like someone's being more aggressive than you and you're like, Oh man, I'm just here to like have fun. Like, that's great. And I, you know, the, we need those people too. And I'm happy that they get to, you know, shoot whatever they can and, and are having fun with it. I'm having fun too, but I have fun when I'm winning basically. And this is how I think of it. So it's like, I, and it doesn't mean that I don't want to be friends with other photographers. Like I do, I'm here with a new friend, Rich Gordon, who I've seen a lot in, he lives in LA, LA and shoots a bunch of LAFC games and great photographer. And still every day, like we've met for the first time, hung out the entire time we're here. But every day I still have the mentality of, okay, that's someone I can benchmark myself again. I better be better. And it's more for me. It's internal. Th- yeah. And I, you know, I'm not like shoving it in people's faces. Um, but if you don't have that attitude, it's so hard to progress. I've only been shooting soccer specifically for like five years. It's so hard to grow that quickly and get to the spot that I got to without having that mentality, I think. I agree with you on that. I mean, that's, you're sounding like me at a younger age. Yeah. Uh, it, when you're shooting games here at the World Cup, and like I just said earlier, I, I can tell sometimes you're, like that's one of your photos from like an action shot. How are you approaching that? Yeah. I think by now I've shot enough games that I know what I look for and what I like. Um, One thing I think is interesting that I just had a conversation with someone about this morning is that I wish more World Cup games were during the day. Yeah. I understand that TV rights and, you know, getting the world to watch and not just World Cup games. I think I can say stylistically, I appreciate day games. Yeah. And when you look back on a lot of like the OG film photos from old past World Cups, they're all day games Mm -hmm. for the most part. And the lighting is just, gives you so much more flexibility. Um, I took photos of fans outside of uh, Lucille Stadium yesterday before Argentina, Saudi Arabia. And like, right away I was like, okay, these are good. Whereas I was at the U S game where I'm trying even harder because of the circumstances and it's much harder to stand out there because the lighting, you can't be as creative and maybe that's me limiting myself and I'll look back in a few years and be like, Oh dude, you're being lazy. But in my experience, a day game, some photographers can't, you know, don't adjust properly or they don't get as creative with it the day game is like a fantasy land where you can find pockets of light and like shoot backlit but also like front lit and you can maneuver and you know do all these different things a night game it's like there's still stuff to do but the lighting is pretty much the same so that's one thing and i pay attention to that 
you know, going in and the lighting in general is huge. I see where the stadium lights are, what kind of lights they are. Can I use them as like flares in the background? Can I, you know, use techniques where I put something in front of my lens to add something that you never see in sports photography? And I think the biggest thing that stands out is I kind of, my whole life I've never really wanted to like, it's not that I've never wanted to fit in. I always wanted to be different. Yeah. So I want to be different and then have people like what I'm doing more. And then I feel okay. Like that's how I feel special. And so I think that attitude has, and that philosophy has goes into my photography. If there's, 200 photographers here at the world cup shooting with 400 millimeter lenses on monopod. I'll still do that when I need to, but I'll put out like a different lens. And when everyone is sitting in their seat, the whole game and like rushing photos to the wire, like mid game, I still have to, I have my own like deliverables. I can do, I delivered like for MLS in the U S game, like 150 selects before 90 minutes were over. So like I can still do that. But I don't stay in my seat the whole time. I, and, you know, FIFA don't kill me, but like, I don't know where I'm allowed to go or what I'm allowed to do. And I don't ask. So it's where other people are stagnant statues for most of the game, if not all. I'm going up, I'm seeing the fans, I'm going to get like a wide shot of the whole stadium. I want to tell the whole story of the game, and you can't do that from one seat. Like, I take photos of, you know, players on the bench. I do, but it could be a portrait where you can't even tell they're on the bench. And it's like just having this mentality that one, it's a story each game. And I think I try and stick to that Two, For me, it's not an assignment. I am there because I want to be there and I'm there because I'm supposed to be telling a full story, not just selling individual pictures for, you know, press, right. which I'm grateful for that opportunity. But I also, you know, position myself that way as a photographer. And, you know, I hear people complain like, oh, I wish like I didn't have to send this to this. And it's like, well, why do you have to, you know, you're, you know, you, you structured it that way. Like try to be a different kind of photographer with a different gig. If you can, you're already, have the pedigree of shooting a world cup. Like, right. you know, I think I, I'm very open-minded and try not to put myself in a box of what I have to do. And, and I also, then I've just learned that like, thankfully the work has been backing it up, right. but I've learned that I can make the rules for what I do. And I feel more so like an artist, like an artist in that sense. Like yeah. I don't, just tell MLS, you know, or let them tell me, hey, we need to like this and this and this. It's like, you guys get what I get and trust that it's the best. And like, that's a relationship that I've built. And I'm again, super grateful that they've allowed me to work in that space because that's how I produce some of my best work. So I think it's understanding how you work and what would work best for you. And yeah, the mentality again is the biggest thing I think that Yesterday for the Argentina game, this is funny. Um, I was really like feeling on fire, honestly. And the guy next to me, the nicest guy is a German guy. And he's like, oh, I, 
he starts the conversation by telling me he like has shot for FIFA for the last 20 years and like he did this and this and this and I'm sure he did and it's awesome like I don't know if I would tell someone that the first time I meet them but he thought I was a young kid which I am I hope how old are you by the way I'm 28 okay I'm starting to feel old honestly especially when I hang around Wes I'm like dude I'm getting old um but I have I have the luxury I think of like a baby face maybe or something where it's like people underestimate but he's like and what I found out is I, I was already editing some shots of Messi in the second half and like, cause he was coming my way the first half and I got a goal celebration and some other stuff. And I knew I was like, had enough to kind of chill for a bit, even though the game got crazy in our yeah. end in the second half. So, you know, I had to be alert still, but I'm like out of the corner of my eye, like watching this guy stop shooting who's been there forever, apparently. And just watching me edit all my photos for like 20 minutes of like the second half. Wow. Not, you know, the whole time, but almost like comically. And then one, I have like some crazy, like I, I use my phone for a reflection and it's like the crowd and then like just a part of messy. And it's literally just my iPhone. Like I found that technique a long time ago and it works really well. Um, especially on like a sunny day, mm-hmm. but it's just something different. And these guys are so used to like, there's no way that you could tell the difference between photographer A and B from say Getty or somewhere else. There's a few, you know, people who stand out, but still, if they're sitting in seat seven and seat eight right next to each other, the photo is looking the same and they're cropping it. They're not doing any edit because they have to, you know, that's what the media and press apparently ask for or Mm. prefer. Um, and so when he saw that I was doing something different, he, it was like uh, someone seeing something for the first time. Huh. I don't know. It was very interesting. And he's yeah. like, I had all this stuff on one picture of Messi that the edit wasn't crazy, but because I used my phone, the reflection, there's a lot of fan reflections and stuff. And he's like, oh, you, you, you're doing too much to this or something. And that's when I know that I'm like doing the right thing. Because <laughs> it's like the only reason he would say that is because it's like different to what he's used to. Right. And instead of him being like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Someone who feels threatened, threatened quickly will say, you know, criticize it in a friendly way. Yeah. And for me, it's like, oh man, I got this guy. Like, <laughs> and that's the competitive in me. It's yeah. like, it's just okay, this guy is like one of the most OG photographers here. He said he's been shooting Messi since he's 13 and he's stopping to look at my pictures while I'm editing them on the field. Like, how do you not feel confident after that? Right. And then that just, yeah, I mean, it gives you the fuel to say things that I'm saying on this podcast. It's like, without that, you, you would be crazy to, you know, feel how I feel sometimes or say some of the, I feel like more progressive or aggressive things that I could right. say. One last very quick question. Yeah. And thank you for this. Um, do you want to do a coffee table photography book like a Walter Yost with either Wes or the U S men's national team? So I think especially now with the way we consume photos and 
it's frustrating for a photographer to have longevity, I think, because you have to continually push out stuff. You don't have to. You can do whatever you want. And I think sometimes it's more impactful when you don't share something for a long time. And that's... But we're restricted to certain platforms for people to see our work. Like, even myself being a photographer, have I haven't seen someone's World Cup book maybe once in my life. Like, looked and, like, flipped pages on a soccer-specific photo book. And it's my world. So it's like... One, does it make sense? And two, like, would people actually, you know, maybe it goes into the make sense part, but will people actually look at it? And I think the answer is yes, if it's done right. And if it's marketed properly. And just you as the photographer are telling things a way that would encourage people to go outside of their usual viewing habits and pay their hard-earned money for something. And I think, yes, I want to do something, but what's on the table for me in my mind right now is not so much the West one or the U.S. national team because I haven't had that access. The West access I've had, but the story's not finished. Um, U.S. soccer, like, there's no way I would do one now unless I was with the team. And I know U.S. soccer would probably want, you know, portions of that. And, you know, I, it's not, I would love to have the conversation because I would 100% be down to do something. But for this World Cup or in the near future, like, I came here telling my close friends that I want to create a book after. But what you realize when you get here and what you imagine back home are always two different things. And it's hard to shoot for me at least with the idea like, Oh, I'm looking for a picture for the book. I'm looking for a picture for the book, like going and I showed up to the first two games and there's no fans outside. And it's like, well, that's not really good for the book. And like, it can stress you out. So the way I'm viewing it, I will kind of mark and star in my archive, like certain photos that I think could make sense or be book worthy. And then at the end of the World Cup, depending on how long I can stay for, because I have to change some things as well, but I've been getting more access than I thought so for for different games. So I think I'll try and stay for the whole thing. And yeah, I think at the end of it, I would love to put something together. And that would probably be, yeah, my first published piece and ideally lead into a 2026 where you know, that's going to be extra special, I think, being in in North America. Um, And then, yeah, so I think my legacy is what I think about a lot as far as not, I don't care what other people think when I'm old and all that, but I want to look back and say, be able to tangibly touch my work and show it to my old friends you know and be like okay this is my more so for my memory and if other people enjoy it too that's amazing so I think books are on the table it's just the right time and the right access the right stories um yeah it was a good question because it's definitely a people are, I had 10 people ask me the same thing this morning so it's um it's coming I think we'll see if I can get the get the photos for it you can find Devin Lamoureux on Instagram at Devin Lamoureux or on his website at DevinLamoureux.com. 
Devin, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's, it's good talking. I, yeah, people who aren't in the photo world all the time, like you want them to know what's going on. And I enjoy learning about, you know, what other people have going on. So thanks for doing these podcasts. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Devin Lamoureux as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>